song is so countercultural, not to the culture around us, but it's countercultural to the church and to what we expect. When we were looking this morning at prayer, um, it's great to have so many comments and questions afterwards, and some of the questions were great, uh, and I'd love to go into them, but we can, we we'd never have enough time. But it's really good that we think about things and we think about the attitude that we have towards things. And just as this morning I was asking that we have, have maybe a different attitude to prayer, this evening I want us to think about what we are doing when we come to God and our whole attitude to the Christian life. And maybe our attitude to the church. Because I think we have a problem, and I think our problem is this. We live in a fantasy world. The real world is a world in which we experience and know anguish and sorrow. But the church is a place that we come as a kind of refuge from that, and we want to be able to come in, and we want to uh, be able to rejoice, and we may have had a rough week, and we want it to make us feel a lot better. Um, we come and we become part of a fellowship, and we want that fellowship to be completely different from the other relationships that we have, that nothing really ever goes wrong. And churches play along with that. We pretend, in other words. We, in our public services, uh, rejoice and say how wonderful everything is and how great God is and how um, everything is beautiful. And uh, in our fellowships, we pretend that as well. So in public and maybe when we meet in Bible study or so on, we say things, but then in private, or when we're gossiping, which we do occasionally, we say things perhaps we shouldn't say. Now, I think that's an unhealthy dualism, and I think that the uh, Bible is much more realistic than we are, and much more honest. And here's a song that was sung in public, which reflects the heartache and the anguish of the believer. And I think it reflects much of our experience. The temptation we often have is to run away. Things aren't going so well in the church. Things aren't going, we just run away. We go somewhere else where we would be happier. But sometimes we actually need to face up to things. And if we're really going to deal with God, then there is a depth that comes in that at times can be incredibly painful. And the Psalms are superb for helping us understand that and express that pain. So as we're, we're thinking uh, about Jesus dying on the cross for us, we'll think, uh, first of all, in terms of what this song says about some of the difficulties that we might face if we're believers. By the way, if you're not a Christian and you're thinking, whoa, this is way too heavy, I don't want to become a Christian because it's, this is very serious, well, it is serious, but that's what life is like, and we don't really want to pretend. So, let's go through this. We look the, the section we sang a moment ago, verses 1 to 8. Just two things, the fortress and the trap. Verse 4, it says there, free me from the trap that is set for me. There is a trap that we can easily fall into. Our enemies have set a trap. And I want to identify from these eight verses five things that are tied in with that. Verse 1, 
shame, embarrassment, shame at how we behave, people perhaps also behaving shamefully towards us. We don't like shame. We don't like being put down. We don't like when our faults and our weaknesses are exposed. When we play the game, we pretend that everything is great, that we're cool, that everything's fine, that we've got things sorted. But shame can be a dreadful thing for us. Verse 3, the trap also is that they are lost and wandering. Uh, For the sake of your name, lead and guide me. He's struggling. He needs guidance. He's not sure. Again, some people have this view of the Christian life that you're absolutely certain about everything. You know where you're going. You know what you're doing. God, you, 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 you know people who say, well, God told me to do this, and God told me to do that, and God told me to do this, and everything just seems wonderful. But it's not. Sometimes we are confused and wandering. It's interesting, I... Um, you know that this was a church of Robert Murray McShane, uh, and there was a PhD written in the 1950s about McShane. Well, a company was going to publish that PhD, and I have the copy of the company's edited version where they inked out all the bits they didn't like. And the bits they didn't like were the bits where McShane had doubts, or when he was really discouraged, or when he was so depressed that he didn't write in his diary for almost a year, or before he died. He didn't write anything. What, what was going on? There was a whole range of different things. And I think that company did that because they wanted to preserve an image of a man. And perhaps, I think somewhat unrealistically, in our Christian lives, saying, well, Christians don't get discouraged. Christians don't get depressed. It's very frustrating for me to hear Christians say, I'm a bit flat. I'm a bit discouraged. I'm a bit down at the moment, so I won't come to church which kind of, for me, is almost exactly the right time to come. And I think I understand why people say that, because they think when they come to church, they either have to be cheerful, or when they're in church, they're supposed to have cheered up after the service so that everyone can say it worked. But what if you came to church and you're even more miserable going out than you were coming in, which can happen. hope it doesn't happen to you this evening, but if it does, never mind. Verse 5, they're spiritually battered. Into your hands I commit my spirit. They're absolutely, you can feel that. You can feel just spiritually, just wave after wave after wave comes upon you. So in verse 7, there is affliction and anguish of my soul. You knew the anguish of my soul. How does a Christian have anguish of soul? How does a Christian get so distressed, surely that cannot be right. But it is right because we're human. And it may actually be more right for the Christian. We may have less protection against the anguish of our soul because surely we should be more spiritually sensitive. So in verse 8, he says he's trapped and restricted. You have not handed me over to the enemy, but I've set my feet in a spacious place. The spacious place he's talking about, that's he's been released. But before that, he's trapped. There is a trap that is there. And I think that many of us as Christians, 
we experience that trap. We feel trapped. We feel ashamed. We feel lost. We feel battered. We feel afflicted. We feel trapped and restricted. But the psalmist in those same verses sets out the alternative to that, the trap and the fortress. They've set a trap, but you are a fortress. Verses 2 and 3, be my rock of refuge, a strong fortress to save me. Since you are my rock and my fortress. When we are in crisis, we have a prayerful trust in God. God is our refuge, verse 1, verse 2, and verse 4. He is the rock. He's not a paper covering. He really is the refuge. Bob Dylan, taking from this and also from Isaiah, uh, sang about, come in, she said, I'll give you shelter from the storm. And there's a sense in which the storm can be going on in our lives, and God is the refuge. God is, is, is our rock. He is our foundation. Again, verses 2 and verse 3. He is our guidance and our light. Verse 3, for the, for the sake of your name, lead me and guide me. He is the God of truth, verse 5, and he cannot deny himself. When God is our rock and God is our fortress, verse 7, we can be glad and rejoice in his love because he sees our affliction and knows the anguish of our soul. Sometimes you can be so discouraged and so depressed that you can't share it with anybody because if you share it with them, you know you're just going to discourage and depress other people. So, who, who do you tell? How, how, do you, how do you express that? And sometimes people just don't express it at all. Nobody knows. Nobody understands. But God understands. God knows the anguish of my soul. Let's go on to look at the verses 9 onwards. The second the middle third of the psalm. Because that, verses 9, that repeats again. Be merciful to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. Verses 9 to 18 speak of two different kinds of hands. The hands of my enemies and the hands of God. Whose life are your hands in? Now, we still live in a culture where we are told it's up to us. Where we are at, it's up to us. But that's not what this song says. This song says, my, my life is either in the hands of my enemies or my life is in the hands of God. The hands of his enemies, what do they want? I am in distress, verse 9. He's physically worn out. My eyes grow weak with sorrow, my soul and my body with grief. My life is consumed by anguish, my years by groaning. My strength fails because of my affliction and my bones grow weak. There is not a great deal of health and wealth teaching in this. Not a great deal. Isn't it? We, um, we complain about a little bit of pain. It's wonder, interesting how we use the word disaster. And sometimes it's a bit facetious. Um, somebody on Facebook today I saw, I've broken my favorite cup. It's a disaster. It's not a disaster. Flooding in Pakistan is a disaster. I use that kind of language uh, as well. I was at the dentist this week, and I was thinking, I hate pain. Now, the dentist, my dentist is a brilliant dentist, and there was hardly any pain. 
apart from the needle uh, going in. I hate all different kinds of pain, and you think as a Christian, well, you shouldn't necessarily be experiencing physical pain. Have you ever had that? You've ever had a, a headache, or you've, your, your, your body's been absolutely aching, and you're saying, where's God in all of this? But look what the psalmist is saying. His eyes, he has wept so much that his eyes have grown weak. His body is consumed with grief, and his years by groaning, and his bones grow weak. He is physically worn out. He is spiritually exhausted. My soul is consumed with grief. He is emotionally battered, verse 10, and, and uh, verse 11 as well. Forgotten, I'm a dread to my friends. I'm the contempt of my neighbors. Those who see me on the street flee from me. A horrible situation that you walk down the street and people who would normally speak to you cross the road rather than speak to you because they just can't face you or what's going through or the contempt they have for you, whatever the reason. And so in verse 12, he says, I have become like broken pottery. I'm broken. Here is a man who is broken. He is a believer. He follows God. Physically worn out, spiritually exhausted, emotionally battered, broken. And we have a kind of Christianity which says, no, no, that doesn't happen. At the cross, at the cross where I first saw the light and the burden of my heart rolled away, it was there by faith I received my sight and now I am happy all the day. Liar. Yeah, you can, you're not. You're not happy all the day. You, you, if you are, there's something wrong with you. There's a great joy and there's great happiness in following Jesus Christ. But it's not true that we are happy all the day. There's nobody in the Bible. N nobody. Not Jesus. Not even Jesus was happy all the day. When he felt that he was in the hands of his enemies, and he really was. He was battered and broken. And let me say this to you, that the real test of your faith as a Christian will not come when everything's going great, when everything is wonderful, but the real test of your faith as a Christian comes when you are battered and broken. When as a consequence of your sin, or a consequence of other people's sin, or very strange providences, so many different things happen to you. I've just been reading a new book by Eric Metaxas on Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And for those of you who know the story of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I was listening um, to Stuart McAllister of Ravi Zacharias discussing this. And he says, most Christians would regard Dietrich Bonhoeffer's story as a tragedy. Bonhoeffer was a German Lutheran pastor who stood up to Adolf Hitler, who went back from the U.S. to Germany to stand up to Adolf Hitler when he could have escaped, who was imprisoned. He was part of the uh, plot to blow up Hitler. And he uh, was imprisoned. And just at the end of the war, out of sheer spite, just a couple of days before he himself committed suicide, Hitler ordered that Bonhoeffer be executed. And he was executed. A young man. And most people look and go, what a tragedy, what a tragedy. And as Eric McTaxis points out and Stuart McAllister point, uh, says as well, he said, Bonhoeffer did not see it as a tragedy. 
He really did not see it as a tragedy. He went. He was like Jesus, in a sense, facing, who, who set his face towards Jerusalem, determined to go there, knowing what would happen to him. Tragedy, disaster, distress. That's when we are taken away from the Lord. But Bonhoeffer paid an enormous price for his faith. But were, is it the case that his time really was in the hands of his enemies? Or, as the psalmist here says, even with all that happening, verse 15, my times are in your hands. God's hand is upon us. You see, what people do is they give you two contrasts. They say, here's the hand of your enemies, and here's the hand of God, and if you're in the hand of God, you never experience the hand of your enemy. It's a very, very, very popular gospel. In, um, I, I heard someone speaking of Joel Osteen. He has this huge church in Texas with tens of thousands of people in the stadium. And if you ever listen to his sermons, it's always, 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 you're better you, you're better life, you this and so on. And somebody called this moralistic therapeutic deism. Now, what that just simply means is a general belief that there is a God, you be good, and God will make you feel better. And that's what we're here to do. But that's not what this is teaching. It's teaching that you can be in the hands of your enemies, that you can be physically worn out, that you can be spiritually exhausted, you can be emotionally battered, you can be broken, and yet still in the hand of God. My times are in your hands. The hand of God is not the place where we go to be immune from life's troubles. It's the place where these things happen to us. Jesus says, John 10, 27, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. Really? The people whom Jesus said that to, Peter, was, was crucified. John was exiled to the island of Patmos. James was the first of the apostles to be martyred. No one can snatch them out of my hand. They shall never perish. Our security as Christians is not from trouble. It is in trouble. And I think the psalmist here, there's a very interesting word that he uses. He talks about affliction. Now, that's because the term affliction is used not of somebody who's totally innocent, but somebody who realizes that some of the things that he's been criticized for, some of the things that he's been slandered about, may well be true. But he still trusts in God. He's not saying, I got it all right. Sometimes when people criticize you, when people attack you, when you feel as though you're being got at, it's a lot, lot easier for you if you're able to say, no, you've all got it wrong. There is no truth in any of your criticism. But when there is truth in the criticism, even partially, it can be a lot, lot harder to bear. He says, my times are in your hands. I'm broken I'm physically weak, I'm in pain, I'm heartbroken, but my times are in your hands. In verse 16, so let your face shine on your servant. Save me 
in your unfailing love. Deal with my enemies. Don't let me be put to shame. Let their lying lips be silent. They speak with pride and contempt. But I'm not proud. I'm not arrogant. I'm not standing here saying, Lord, I'm right and they're wrong. I'm just saying, I'm a broken man. I'm a broken man and I need your face to shine upon me. My times are entirely in your hands. The reason that so many people say, well, I was a Christian and I used to believe in God. I used to go to church, but I, maybe they even say, I still believe in God. I still go to church and, and so on, but I've lost my faith or I'm, I'm not as strong as I was. And you ask why and you say, because something really bad happened. Something I did or something someone did to me or some major illness or some disaster in the church or some enormous betrayal. And you say, they say, well, I just don't have as much trust. I don't believe. And you kind of look and say, haven't you read the Bible? That's, that's what happens. You want betrayal? What about Jesus? You want suffering and trouble? What about Jesus? And I thought that you were his follower. That's what happens. But you trust and you rely that God's times are in his hands. Now, we're not saying, Lord, my time's in your hands because things are going really well, but when things are going really bad, I'm no longer in your hand. That would be a horrendous God to believe in. Now, we'll go on in a moment to, to see just the last part of, of that psalm. But let's sing these verses. Um, Verses 9 to 15, if we could put them up. Be merciful to me, O Lord, for my distress knows no relief. My eyes grow weak with sorrow's tears, my soul and body with my grief. The tune will be Hereford. Let's uh, stand and we'll sing these words, this prayer. You be merciful to me, O Lord, for my distress knows no See 
Let's just look at the last part of the psalm. We come, you're in that situation where you are, you're struggling, you're struggling because of the physical side of it, but the physical side is made a hundred times worse because of the emotional and because of the spiritual side, and that's accentuated because it's not what you expected. It's not what you thought when you became a Christian. It's not what you expected in the church. You don't expect to have trouble in the church, you expect to have trouble in the world, but you, you have trouble within yourself and trouble amongst your brothers and sisters. So, what do you do? Well, from verse <coughs> 19 onwards, there's both fear and hope expressed. Let me deal with the fear first because it's in verse 22. In my alarm or in my fear, I said, I'm cut off from your sight. That's actually the worst. That's when you reach the lowest of the low. Not when your body is broken. Not when your, your heart is broken. Not when you're betrayed by your friends. But when you think that God has cut you off. That's it. What have you got? You have nothing. If God has cut you off, it's the end. But that was a fear that was wrong. Understandable but wrong. Yet you heard my cry for mercy when I called to you for help. Verse 19, what an extraordinary contrast between this broken, shattered vessel who is saying, how great is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you. 
I don't think it's wise for Christians to pray to be broken. Don't pray for it. It'll happen anyway. But don't pray for it. Why would you pray for it? But pray that you would be made more aware of the goodness of God. And this is where it is deeply counterculture in the church. People say, I know that God is good because I have health, that God is good because this healing happened, or that God is good because everything's wonderful in the church. And those things are true. They are true and never to be despised. But to know that God is good when you are broken is a tremendous knowledge, a tremendous thing he had. Verse 21, he showed his wonderful love to me when I was in a besieged city. Verse 23, the Lord preserves the faithful, but the proud he prays back. Those who think they can make it on their own. They're the ones who, when the test comes, it turns out that their faith is not genuine because their faith was not in God. Their faith was in themselves. Their faith was in their understanding. Their faith was in their circumstances. Their faith was in their wise choices. Choices. I chose the right church. I chose the right people. I know what I'm doing. They don't really believe that they can be broken. But such pride and such arrogance, God breaks. Be strong, he says. Take heart, all you hope in the Lord. I love that idea of hope here as well, because this hope, in the, and I think this is true throughout the Bible, it's absolute confidence about what will happen, but it's combined with ignorance about when it will happen. Confidence about what will happen, but ignorance about when it will happen. You see what we do? You see people say, oh, I know that God's going to bless this year. It's going to be an amazing year. Maybe he's not. Oh, I know that God's going to heal. Maybe he's not. We, we, we specify times. We put dates. What we need to know, what we need to have is an absolute confidence that the future God has prepared for us are his plans to give us a future and a hope. But we can't, we, we don't know how it's all going to work out, or, and I mean, not the end result, but we don't know the whole process that we have to go through all of this. Now, the way I, I want to think about this, I mean, I, I read this, and to be honest, I read this um, this week, and I was fine preparing for it. I read this this afternoon, and I was pretty discouraged in some things. I was pretty flat about some things, and I read this and I thought, okay, I'm not like broken pottery, but, you know, could I not preach on something a bit more cheerful? And then but when I read this, I found, I found this to be so incredibly encouraging. Because I just thought, forgive that kind of colloquialism, but I thought, stuff it. It doesn't matter. Nothing really matters because my times are in God's hands. And sometimes you feel good, and sometimes you feel bad. And sometimes things go well, and sometimes things don't go well. Does it matter? No, it doesn't. Actually, it doesn't really matter. Not ultimately, because our times are in God's hands. And there's a great quote out of Lord of the Rings. And I haven't quoted Lord of the Rings for a long, long time. So those of you who are Lord of the Rings, you know, have an antipathy towards it. Just forgive this one. This is a beautiful quote. If you, if you can't get this, you ain't got no soul. But let me read it. So it's a fairly lengthy quote. It's uh, about Sam when he was very, very discouraged. 
And some of the words ignore because they're just Tolkien playing with language, but you'll get the gist. Far above the Ethelduth in the west, the night sky was still dim and pale. There peeping among the cloud, rack above a dark tor high up in the mountains, Sam saw a white star twinkle for a while. The beauty of it smote his heart as he looked up out of the forsaken land and hope returned to him. For like a shaft clear and cold, the thought pierced him that in the end, the shadow was a small and passing thing. There was light and high beauty far beyond its reach. I love that. The beauty of it smote his heart. There's Sam and he's in the forsaken land. And he's so discouraged and he's so depressed and he just wants to lie down and die. And he looks up and he sees a star. And the beauty of the star, the beauty of it smote his heart. And he realized that though he was down in the, in the, in the forsaken land, that it was a shadow. The forsaken land was a shadow. That re, the reality was the beauty. The reality was untouchable by the shadow. The devil could rip you apart. People can mock you. Your own heart can condemn you. But God is greater than your heart and there is no darkness that can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The beauty of Christ is beyond the reach of the deepest darkness that you or I will ever experience. And I think that that's, for me, I just think that that's an incredible thing. I think it was an incredible insight that Tolkien had into human nature. People in this world live with a beauty that is a shadow and a failing shadow. They can't keep it. They will lose it. They disappear. It vaporizes. It's gone. But we as believers in Jesus... We know that the darkness is but a shadow. Painful, hurts, hurts like mad. But the beauty is there. That's why when Stephen was being stoned, that he looked up and he saw Jesus seated at the right hand of God and his face shone and he was being stoned to death. But they could inflict all the pain that they wanted. They could kill him. But it wouldn't take away from the fact that Christ would raise him. It doesn't take away from the fact that his eyes would see the king in all his beauty. And I think the psalmist, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is reflecting something as well that we have a deeper insight to even than the psalmist. And I'll tell you what that is. Because as we take communion, the thought occurs to me that Christ went through all of this. You go back through that whole psalm. And you will find a trap that has been set. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus said that on the cross, didn't he? Be merciful to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eyes grow weak with sorrow, my soul and my body with grief. My life is consumed by anguish, my years by groaning. Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane was in such anguish that he sweated great drops of blood. I am forgotten by them as though I were dead. I am the contempt of all my enemies. I hear the slander of many. There is terror on every side. It was extraordinary what Jesus Christ 
went through. It's a quote I've used often, and I'll continue to use it often. I love it. The t- uh, Rabbi Duncan said this, there is no place so deep that Christ has not gone deeper still. No place so deep that Christ has not gone deeper still. And that's why as we take communion, we remember the suffering and our own suffering pales into insignificance compared with that. But it's not just that. It's not just that contrast, but by his stripes, we are healed. The fact that he went through Psalm 31 in a far, far deeper way than David did or that you or I ever will means that God's, we are guaranteed that God's face will shine upon us. That's why we are told to be strong and to take heart and to, to love the Lord. Love the Lord. There is nothing that can take away from His beauty. Some of you are you're very happy. You're, you're walking on the mountaintops. Things are going really, really well. God has really blessed you. And be thankful for it and never despise it and never feel guilty about it. That is wonderful. But some of you are battered and bruised. You are tired and weary. You are exhausted. You are confused. You are hurt. You, you, you want to walk away, but you've got nowhere to walk away to. Where do I go? Where do I go? You go to Christ because because he will show his wonderful love because his goodness is great because no eye has seen no ear has heard no mind has conceived the goodness the things that God has stored up for those who love him. It's funny. The Christian life is one of brokenness and being broken. But it's also one of continual healing and being prepared to be with God in glory. You know, it's much easier to take the gospel to somebody who's been broken. In a strange kind of way, we look at the drug addict or the down and out lying on the street, and we think they're so much harder to take the gospel to. No, 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 they're not. Not at all. Because most, at least in my experience, are fully aware that they are broken people living in a broken world. It's the same. Surely, surely it's the same for those of us who are Christians. It's much, much easier for us to grow in grace if we're not arrogant, if we're not self-righteous, if we're not proud, if we're not complacent and at ease in Zion, if we're not the kind of people who are constantly moaning about everyone else because they're not as good as we are. Isn't it much easier just to come to the Lord with a broken spirit and a contrite heart? Not, Not the kind of broken spirit and contrite heart which is always about me, me, me but just one that says, Lord, I am a broken, shattered pot. Mend me. Heal me. This morning we were talking about God answering prayer according to his will. It is God's will 
that his people be whole. It is our folly that we think we are. We need to have the communion to remind us, and we need in our brokenness to see Christ's brokenness healing us and curing us. Let's pray. Lord, we don't like being broken. We don't like being slandered. We don't like being hurt. We don't like being gossiped about. We don't like being in pain. We don't like hurting. We don't like all the things that have happened to us that we have buried deep within ourselves. We don't like those being exposed. We don't like wounds being reopened. We don't, O oh Lord, in other words, like it when you go deep into our lives. We hide. Like Adam and Eve in the garden, we hide. We hide from you, we hide from ourselves, and we hide from others. But your word goes into the very depths of our being and will not allow us to hide. You expose, not to destroy, but to heal. Like the surgeon's knife, you open up, not to wound, but to cure. So we come to you and we come in our weariness and in our sorrow and in our frustration, and in our anguish, and in our anger. We come, O oh Lord, to seek your healing. We come as we take communion, reminding ourselves of your death, that it's by your stripes that we are healed. Help us. If anyone here doesn't know you, Lord, we pray that they would come to you, even as they hear this and watch us take communion. For those who do know you, O oh Lord, maybe we shouldn't pray break our hearts, but at least melt them. Forgive us when we are hardened and cynical and bitter. Refresh us and renew us. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up and soar on wings like eagles. Lord, give us those wings, for we ask it in your name. Amen.